Welcome, adventurers. This is MuseCast 14, your podcast for everything roleplay in the world of Eorzea. I'm your co-host, Emmy. And I'm your co-host, Remix Sakura. And today's episode, as you might have guessed, is a continuation of the Beast Tribes of Eorzea, episodes that we have been working on for the past, well, episode. This episode is going to focus more on the Heavensward Beast Tribes. Yes, those Beast Tribes who not only have their own quest lines, but also the dragons who are central to the story of Heavensward. That's right. Now, the dragons were actually mentioned in the Encyclopedia Eorzea Volume 2 uh-huh. as potentially a type of creature who might be considered a beast tribe, but they definitely are not considered beast tribes in terms of the game's developers. They don't have their own quest line, and they're featured in the Heavensward quests pretty prominently in the main scenario. Yeah, I mean, they're an intelligent being with a advanced society, so... I think that they're very much worth talking about. I think so, too. And I mean, to be fair, they were against the interests of Ishgard as a city-state for quite a while. But before we get into that anyways, let's talk a little bit about their history, even before the Dragonsong War and all of that. Way, way before. Way, way, way before, in what is known as time before time, according to uh, the dragons. The dragons actually were not created on Hydaelyn. They arrived in Hydaelyn from what is known as the Dragon Star, just this other place where the dragons originated. And Midgard Summer fathered the first brood of dragons on Hydaelyn. Now he fled to Hydaelyn and he made a sort of pact with Hydaelyn. Through this pact with Hydaelyn, in exchange for defending Silver Tear Falls, according to the dragons, the dragons would then be allowed to populate Hydaelyn. So that's why we have the dragons that we do today. Every single dragon, whether they originated as a dragon or as a human, every single dragon we see today is because of Midgardsummer, who is still around. Yes, and all the dragons are descended from one of his seven children, who are known as the Great Worms. You may have heard of some of these before. Bahamut, Nidhogg, Hraisfelger... Redditosker. And unfortunately, a lot of them sort of met tragic ends, to be fair. Bahamut, of course, was destroyed. Hraisfelger seems to be alive and well, of course. Tiamat, unfortunately, has sort of self-imprisoned herself as punishment, so she's just kind of stuck around in Aziz Law, as we know. So, unfortunately, a lot of the first brood, at least, did not turn out all that well. But despite that, we still have quite a few, to say the least, dragons still roaming around Hydaelyn and who we work with. Absolutely, absolutely. There is a very complex bestiary that you can see throughout many of the Heavensward areas and many of the Ishgard-themed dungeons as well. Now, as far as how their society is structured, it's basically all centered again around the Great Worms. They serve as both government and religion. Each rules over their own brood their own offspring. Dragons reproduce asexually. I see. But despite that, it seems like some of the dragons had paired up. Yes. Bahamut and Tiamat, for example, were a pair. Some people argue (laughs) Hraisvelger and Shiva even had a thing going on. They They certainly had a strong bond between them, regardless of what it actually was. Yeah, they've been known to form pair bonds. But each of these broods and hordes forms the basis of the dragon society and each is loyal to one of the great worms 
Though I wonder what happens when one of the great worms dies, like, for example, Ratatoskr, who was murdered. What happened to her Or Nidhogg, even. Yeah. They just kind of wander around. Though, I guess it's not clear what happens when one of the great brood dies. For example, after Ratatoskr was murdered, it seems like her minions just kind of wandered around Sorkai, her former home, making it into a dungeon for us. Right, but what about some of the dragons who allied themselves with Nidhogg? I wonder what happened to them. Hmm. They are kind of wandering about. Actually, the plot of Somal Hard Mode is that you have to clear out some of the leftover remnants of Nidhogg's brood. So maybe they just wander around aimlessly. Yeah. At least until a new successor can be named. It's a little bit strange because of how long dragons actually live. Yeah, they're known to live for millennia, and it's not really clear whether they're truly immortal immortal, as in they can't be killed, or they just simply can't die of age. But what's for sure is that human lives are like a blip on their radar screen, just a moment in time to them. Yeah, actually, a lot of dragons we work with alongside the Mughals, there's a very young dragon who is trying to accomplish tasks and he just throws around years as though it's nothing. And the people around him are like, wait, wait, wait a second. If it's going to take a thousand years for you to get this task done, (laughs) we're all going to be goners by then. (laughs) But because of the lifespan of the dragons, let's say, A thousand years may not be all that long, so something like the Dragonsong War, which was a thousand-year war and involved many, many generations of Ishgardians, didn't seem all that long. So you would see the dragons allying with humans, with, with these heretics, Ishgard called them, and the humans would be around and then they would be gone. Just in an instant, they'd be gone. Yes. Nonetheless, there were humans who took the side of the dragons during the Dragonsong War, these heretics. And there is even the ability for a human, because of the secret we learn about dragon's blood, there's the ability of a human to turn into a dragon. And some breeds of dragons, specifically the Avis, the Sericta, and the Giruviganus, forgive my pronunciation. They're tough to read. (laughs) (laughs) Those are all species of dragon that were once human. A human that drank of dragon's blood. Some heretics actually went that far in their quest to help dragonkind. They turned into dragons themselves. Although it doesn't seem like any of those types of dragons are quite as intelligent as the rest of your dragon types, as those who were born dragons. Yeah, it's not clear if the once human dragons have this immortality as well. They mostly get slaughtered by us within seconds of us seeing them, so... (laughs) That's true, especially as we continue to level up into level 70 and level 80. They don't even want to deal with us anymore. (laughs) They're just like, please, you've killed enough of us. Yes. Another fascinating point about dragon society is that they have their own language, which was actually developed as a conlang, a constructed language, by Koji Fox. And you can hear many dragon-speak words in place names and attack names like Akral or Akmorn. Akmorn actually means ring of death. And I mean, it is a ring of death. Yeah, whether it's done by Bahamut or by a summoner. Yeah, the language is actually a pretty interesting thing here, and we could talk about it for a while, so I think we will. But let's do that on our bonus content. Hmm, our bonus content? You mean the thing that people who join our Patreon have access to? That is true. We are beginning to put out some bonus episodes, so please look forward to a 
Bonus episode on Dragon Speak. Ooh. What is our next beast tribe? Well, let's talk about one that actually I don't think you enjoy all that much, relatively speaking, but I certainly do. I certainly do because this culture is a very <laughs> dance-based um, culture. And that's the Vanu Vanu <laughs> residing in the Sea of Clouds. Yes. The Vanu Vanu are giant bird-like creatures, but they don't look much like the Ixal. They're much more rotund. They look more like owls. They do. They they do look more like owls than they do Ixal or anything like that. They're very, they're big. They're big guys. And gals. And gals. And they also don't fly. And they don't fly <laughs> and they wear silly hats, which I like. Made of flowers. Made of flowers. Yes. Interestingly, their existence was only recently discovered by Ishgardian airship voyages in the Sea of Clouds. So their relationship with the Ishgardians and the spoken races is still kind of shaky. Despite that, they've learned the common tongue of Eorzea, and their particular dialect uses a lot of flowery language and a lot of similes and metaphors having to do with nature. Like half their sentences start with, like a sapling growing in the dirt, like this, like that, about nature. Right. It's not so much a verbal tick per se. It's just a different style of speaking. A lot of these beast tribes do have like verbal kupos or, or what have you that we discussed in the last episode. <laughs> these guys, these guys, I think, are a little bit more flowery with their language. Yeah, flowery, but their speaking style is very close to what we in common tongue would consider as acceptable proper grammar. So the Vanuvanu live in a very tribal society. There's not too many tribes that we know of, but we do know that the most dominant tribe currently is the Vundu tribe, and they are currently undertaking sort of a hostile takeover of the other tribes, the Zundu and the Gundu. Now, don't mix these up. I've gotten these mixed up all the time. Don't mix up the Vundu and the Zundu. Zundu, good guys. Vundu, bad guys. There was once also a tribe called the Bendu, but they were exterminated by the Vundu. So they don't mess around. They are not the good guys. And actually, the Voondoo were the ones who summoned the primal Bismarck. And it sort of went to their heads. Bismarck is a deity that's kind of worshipped by all of the Vanu Vanu tribes. Bismarck functions as a protector of all of the Vanu Vanu tribes. He was the one who guided the Vanu to the islands where they reside today. And any place where people want to harm them... Bismarck will apparently destroy them. So this giant sky whale is the deity that they all worship and was summoned. So fun fact, the restaurant, the Bismarck, in Limsa Liminsa is named after the whale. Interesting. So Limsa knows yes. at least a bit about the Vanu Vanu yeah. culture. They know a lot about famous sea creatures. I see. And and after all, Bismarck does swim through the sea of clouds as, as the lore book put it, as though it were the waters of the Rotanu. So... It would make sense. You don't see it mentioned really anywhere outside of there, though, and, and anywhere outside of the Sea of Clouds and the Heavensward areas. Indeed. Let's go back to some of the cultural points of the Vanu Vanu, especially the dancing. I think that a lot of their traits remind me of Pacific Islander culture, the way that they use flower necklaces and flower crowns, and how the sundrop dance could be likened to the haka dance, a dance used for battle. To rev people up. Right. It's really this intimidation culture with both the sun drop and the moonlift dances that we, we put together as part of the Beast Tribe quest. 
And you don't often see a lot of outward fights, at least when we interact with the Vanu Vanu, because this dancing, this intimidation, really quells all of the matters that happen to come up. So it's a good way to mitigate things without being a warring and a destructive culture, but you need to make sure that the other people want to dance, that they have time to, to really take part in this. I wonder how they would stand up against other cultures that are more warrior-based or hunters or mercenaries like the Kojin are. Hmm. They may not respect the dance as much. Probably not. But because the Vanu Vanu respect it so much, the strength and force and will that you put into your dance can be enough to scare the bad guys away. Right. At least internally. And that might be some part of why the Vanu have stuck around all these years, even though you do have some tribes like the Vandu who do exterminate other tribes. Yeah. I wonder if they were exterminated via some drop dance. They just danced themselves to death. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I don't think that was the case. But, but needless to say, the sun drop dance is pivotal to the Vanu Vanu culture and something that they practice a lot. They practice to perfect and shows someone's internal strength of character, which, of course, means that the warrior of light masters it within days. Right. <laughs> I mean, I do. I really like the Vanu Vanu because of the dancing, even though I don't dance in real life. As somebody who has a character who loves dances, I can appreciate that. Yeah, we got the sundrop dance and the moonlift dance from them. So we have this culture that settles conflicts with dancing in some cases. Let's talk about one that really focuses a lot more on battle. Yes. Yes, the Nath. Yeah, let's talk about the Nath here. So who exactly are they? They're those beetle-like creatures with hard shells, mandibles, bipedal. They look like beetles or ants. Yeah, they're definitely not one of the prettier races to look upon. <laughs> but that said, it didn't seem like they had a ton of speech tick, at least the ones who could talk. Occasional clicking from them, but not a whole lot else. Yeah, the click-click. But other than that, they speak the common tongue pretty well, at least the ones in the non-mind. Right. The ones in the hive mind, who are really your bad beast tribe faction for the Nath, don't really talk all that much. And, and that's for reasons that we'll go into in a little bit. Yes. Basically, like many insects, the native state of the Nath is that of a hive mind, and they call this the One Mind, and it's ruled over by a single Nath called the Overmind, who's essentially a dictator of every single being in the colony through mental control. There is no individualism at all. There is no government. There's no society. There is just the hive and the mind that rules over it, and they're psychically linked together. However, once in a while, a Nath will come about that has such a strong individuality and force of will that they're actually able to break the psychic connection of the hive mind. And what do they do? Well, it turns out that many of these Nath that were kicked out of the hive mind came together to form a new society, and they called themselves the non-mind, since they were not part of the one mind, and they called themselves the Vath instead of the Nath, and they formed a new settlement, and are just trying to figure out the world for themselves and figuring out their own individualism. Whereas the One Mind has every single Nath functioning as really an appendage of the, the society's body, the non-mind is different. You have a say in what you want to be. Your will, your talents determine how you lend your talents as an individual. In the One Mind, you would just say, okay, what is this particular creature good at? 
It's good at hunting. Okay, you're a hunter now. Go hunt. It doesn't matter what you want to do. That's what you do. That is what the one mind commands you to do. Do it. So the beast tribe quests that you do for the Vath are focused a lot on finding identity, on finding out who you are, what you want to do, and, and really establishing yourself as a person. And personally, this is my favorite of the Beast Tribe stories. It's a very touching story, and the characters in it are extremely cute, even if on the outside, they're not the prettiest to look at. They're still cute. <laughs> they're still cute. They're still cutie pies. They're just not cutie pies that you would always, you know, say, oh, look, they're so adorable. You have to get to know them. <laughs> you wouldn't hug them, or maybe you would. Uh, some of my characters probably would. I might, <laughs> but you, you really have to get to know them first, I think. Some people who are afraid of bugs might not be a fan of, of the Nath. Yeah, but I agree. It's a great storyline starring the Vath Deftarm, who has actually just chosen a name for himself because after they break off from the colony, they have to think up individual names for themselves. What am I? Who am I? <laughs> yeah, and everyone's free to choose their own name. And deciding to be an adventurer, the Deftarm decides to follow in the path of their greatest idol, you the Warrior of Light. <laughs> and so as a result you're creating an adventurer's guild with them and, and helping them to get that established yes and though he faces challenges along the way it's a great story to see how the deft arm finds greater and greater individuality and stronger identity throughout the story and sometimes it takes the help of friends to remember who you are yeah how sweet what cute bugs they're really really cute I would say if you had to do one and you don't really like to dance, this might be good. Oh, and also if you don't craft, this is this <laughs> is not a uh, beast tribe that requires crafts. Unlike the Moogles. Let's talk about the Moogles next. Oh, those Moogles. Those silly Moogles. They're, I don't think I need to describe much what Moogles look like. They're floating balls of white fuzz with wings on their back and palms on their head. Right. If you've played a Final <laughs> Fantasy game, they appear in just about all of them. So you know what they look like. You know what they act like. They're pretty silly. And and the FF14 one in particular just goes completely over the top with how they're characterized. Yeah, they're basically the comic relief. They're depicted as silly, mischievous, lazy, and or drunk and easily bribed with Koopo nuts. <laughs> but they're also known to be a mysterious and elusive tribe, at least in the Black Shroud. It's not clear whether they actually hide themselves with magic or just plain sneakiness, but it's actually rare to see a Moogle, and not a lot is known about the specifics of Moogle society. They kind of like to keep to themselves, which gives them a sort of fairy-like quality. Of course, in Heaven's Word, we find out that there are not only Moogles living in the Black Shroud, but also in Dravania, in the Churning Mist, at the peak of Somal. And these Moogles have established themselves as tradesmen. Now, they still possess the same lackadaisicalness that you see within the Gridanian Moogles, but nonetheless, they're still pretty industrious. They still get things done, and they work together with the dragons and, of course, the Warriors of Light and the Elizin around to reestablish Barlays. I think that's how it's pronounced anyway. <laughs> Again, pardon our, our mispronunciation in case we have. Dragon speak is tough. It really is. Though you can't say that the 
Moogles are not somewhat industrious. They do run the postal service. They do. They deliver letters all over Eorzea, wherever we happen to go, and it seems like they may be in the Far East as well. So Yeah. So they still go all over the place, even though we have at least the two different societies that we know of. Yeah, when they're not hiding, they actually get to travel around a lot. Even though they do make mistakes from time to time. Yeah. Or even if they make us do their work for no good reason from time to time. Yeah, that's true. All of those Moogle delivery quests. Anybody remember those? I remember those. All those for a hat. <laughs> I remember the endless chain of side quests that appears when you get to the churning mist. It never, ever ends. It never, ever ends. It's just one quest and another one appears. You finish one and another one appears. Yeah, the Moogles just really do not like doing their own work. <laughs> yeah, and it just became sort of a meme for a while. Like, everybody hates Moogles. <laughs> Even the Moogle-based Primal who we accomplish is kind of a pain to destroy. Yeah, right? Good King Moogle-mog. Good King Moogle-mog is really a legend. It's a silly legend, to be honest. But it's a legend that's held by the, the Moogles in, in high esteem here. Good King Mughalmog is a king who led Mughals to the realm of mortals to live in peace among them. Really, of course, that just corresponds to, well, the Mughals used to live in the Turning Mists, and then they decided to go to Gridania, and some of them stayed behind, and some of them left for Gridania, and that's why we have two societies today. But according to the Mughals anyways, uh, they used a rope to get all of the Mughals to the land of the, the mortals. Or, or Gridania, uh, since it was too long of a distance for them to fly themselves. Never mind the fact that they fly everywhere to deliver the mail. <laughs> and, then, and, and anyway, so the king, for whatever reason, could not climb down this rope, so he had to stay behind. And it was a noble sacrifice to the Mughals, and so they celebrate good King Mughalmog, and they never named another king after that. Yes. And actually, as a primal... The king was the first entity to be summoned as a primal who was not actually a deity. He was more of a legend. But maybe you could say he attained the status of a god by being so legendary. He was just so highly revered that the Mughals just thought of him as a god. And they had to summon him. And his palm guard. It seems like his characterization was a whole lot different than the legend makes it out to be. Like, it seems like this king Mughalmog was... Just a, a really kind-hearted guy, and then, you know, here we are with this Muggles guard, and, and he seems a lot more aggressive yeah. in the primal form. Yeah, but we know that primals, when they manifest, it has a lot to do with what the people summoning them have to think. Right. It's really like their own vision of what the primal is. Uh-huh. And apparently this version wanted to beat us up. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> And that wraps it up for this edition of the Beast Tribes. We still have more to go. There's a round three here. Next time we're going to be talking about the ones in Stormblood and go into some more fan submissions about what it's like to play some of the Stormblood Beast Tribe races. We'll also take a look at some other miscellaneous Beast Tribe races who don't get featured quite as prominently in there, but who we still want to mention. So... They'll be not exactly Stormblood specific. We'll have some from Heaven's Word and some from even A Realm Reborn. But we'll go over a lot of other Beast Tribe races in the next episode too. Yeah, we want to give everybody a shout out. 
For now, though, shall we begin our stories? We shall. So every week, because we love playing the game so very much, we give an account of something that has happened between this past episode and now. Anything in character, out of character, in game, occasionally out of game. Uh, would you like to start or should I? I'll let you start. Okay. So, keeping with the Beast Tribe theme here, sometimes when you're playing FF14, you just get this random idea as a role player to create a new character. And this character came out of the blue, but was still kind of Beast Tribe based. So let me tell you a little bit about him. At this point, he's just this kind of concept. Imagine here for a moment an Elizan who was born in the Black Shroud, who is born a hearer. So he is able to speak with the elementals. He sees Moogles from time to time. He is, you know, familiar with the ways of the Twelves Wood. However, he's kind of a jerk. He does not respect the Twelves Wood and the elementals. One single bit. Yes. And as a result, the elementals absolutely hate him and kick him out of the shroud. So this character then, who who is still nameless at this point, decides that he needs, of course, to make a living somewhere. So he heads to Uldah, as so many of my characters tend to do. <laughs> and he goes to make a living. Now, he's a bit of a, a sleazy scumbag type of guy, and there are a lot of sleazy merchants over in Uda, so it isn't very long before he finds his way into the capable, question mark, hands of some of these merchants, and he learns how to make a living selling snake oil products and what have you. And he eventually comes upon this very, very interesting business opportunity. He is selling his wares on the street, and he overhears the very curious term of free Kupo nuts, which of course is mentioned in the Moogle Beast tribe as a way for the adventurers to try and get the Moogles to go to work. It's like an incentive for anybody who goes and works on this specific project. And he of course wonders, well, why are these Kupo nuts free? You could be selling them. You could be making a profit. So, he figures out where the Moogles are, because he, he is not particularly fond of the Moogles either, but he'll sell things to them if it means making a profit. And he heads over to the Churning Mist, and he starts selling free brand Kupo Nuts. Not free Kupo Nuts, mind you. He, he sells these Kupo Nuts. He says they're free Kupo Nuts because the brand is free, but then he charges them out the wazoo for these free Kupo Nuts. And the Moogles don't know any better and they don't want to go anywhere else because they're just lazy. So that was my character that I came up with the other day. Wow. Um, and, and so, I mean, I just think it's a, it's a funny way to incorporate beast tribes into into creating a character that may not necessarily be a beast tribe race. And I'm not exactly sure if I'll end up actually making this character, but I just thought it was a funny story to to kind of tell you guys as we're working on this beast tribe episode, seeing as it this character was developed as timely as it was. <laughs> wow. To think that a Gridanian was actually an Uldan at heart. He really was. <laughs> <laughs> So who knows if you'll end up seeing this character around the world sometime, but that is that is something that certainly happened to me in this past couple weeks. You never know, World Visit is coming soon. What have I been up to? 
You know, every year I reflect on the fact that I enjoy the in-game Starlight season so much more than actual real-life Christmas. Let me tell you. You do? Let me tell you. I could not care less about real-life Christmas, but Starlight, I like to go all out. Now, that included, as we mentioned last time, our annual Very Merry Starlight Banquet, RP event, which I was very satisfied with. We had bard performances, we had food, we had conversation, we had people gorging. I usually give out a menu of appetizers, drinks, and entrees. One of the characters in attendance ordered one of everything. (laughs) Oh my goodness. And I actually gave them one of everything, which was like 12 items. And apparently they ate them all. Wow. Talk about an appetite. Yeah. Really. And we had a really, really great performance by an alt of the wonderful Wanderer Sabaku. I remember that. It was a great performance. I wish we could have recorded it, but, well, copyright issues. Yeah. And immediately after that was the winter market, which both of us were a part of. That's true. Scoot ordered all the honey muffins that one vendor had in stock. And so he wound up with a stack of about 300-something honey muffins and gave some to Natsu. (laughs) But what happened to you during the winter market? Well, Natsuki was a vendor, and I decided to specialize in furniture and housewares, which took a little while to pick up, but sold pretty well. And everything I sold was below market board price. You can get some pretty good deals at the winter market. Most people do sell it at under or around market board price. Indeed. Even though he's an omni-crafter, I always think of his specialty as woodworking, so I think that furniture is one of his favorite things, even though it's not as exciting as forging weapons. I think he prefers that to forging weapons. I can picture that. And in addition, of course, within our community, there's two characters in particular that Natsuki is very close to, and both of them, of course, were going to get starlight gifts. And I spend quite a bit of time crafting these gifts, because a lot of the gifts were actually i380 gear (laughs) oh my yeah that would have taken a lot of time i remember gathering all the mats for a team of raiders so making 380 gear is no joke yeah but we had a little private session where we all exchanged the gifts the three of them and then the day after we had the secret santa event which is also an annual tradition where people from around the community get together to exchange presents Secret Santa style, you get assigned a mystery person to donate to, a mystery person donates to you. So there's a lot going on in the holiday season in FF14, and I can only imagine what was going on on some other servers. Oh yes, I imagine on Baomong it must have been absolute madness, but a great type of madness in terms of what was available. Yes. So every year, without fail, I prefer Starlight to Christmas. <laughs> Even if I had to farm out that rhythm game for decorations. (laughs) That's true. And that's my story. Well, with that, I suppose that wraps up our episode for today. So next episode, as we already said, we will focus on the Stormblood Beast tribes and some miscellaneous beast races as well. But until then, of course, you can always subscribe, share, and follow us on social media. You can find all of our past episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and now on Spotify. You can always find us by looking up Musecast XIV on all of those. And you can find us on our social media, on our website, which is hosted through Tumblr, that is musecastxiv.com. 
You can also find us on Facebook. Just look up MuseCast XIV and you'll find us there too. And you can find us on Twitter at MuseCast XIV. We are very, very creative with our usernames. Very creative. Yes. We also do occasional storytime streams on our Twitch channel. That is twitch.tv slash MuseCast XIV. And you can join in some of the conversation about our episodes, about any sort of lore questions you might have, just about FF14 in general, by finding our Discord channel. That is on our website. Just look for the link on our homepage. And if you like what you heard and you would like to support us in some way, you can do that in three ways now. You can support us through Patreon, where for a monthly donation, you can get access to things like bonus content, all the things that we wanted to talk about, like Dragon Tongue, and didn't have a chance to speak about. Or you can get access to episodes 24 hours before they come out, which is always really cool. You can also make a one-time donation to us on our PayPal. Regardless of what way you decide to support us, we are very, very thankful, nonetheless. But to find both of those, go to our website and click on the shiny blue buttons. And you can support us through Twitch subs as well on our Twitch channel. Now, all of the money that we raise on Twitch goes toward our streaming efforts and not our podcast. So if you want to support the podcast in specific, we recommend that you use either Patreon or PayPal. Yes, we have a very, very loyal and generous Patreon family whom I thank every day. And they've helped us break even, finally. They really have. Finally. It's very, very exciting at the moment. Yeah, so with that said, this episode of MuseCast 14 was brought to you by all of our Patreon donors and was sponsored with love from our MuseCast sponsor, Hershey. Find her on social media, including her Twitter, at Hershnefersh, that's at H-E-R-S-H-N-I-F-E-R-S-H, or check out her FF14 and variety stream at twitch.tv forward slash Hershnefersh. Same spelling, H-E-R-S-H-N-I-F-E-R-S-H. Thanks, Hershey. Thank you, Archie. And thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in. We hope to see you next time on our final edition of The Beast Tribes. Until then, happy adventuring, and we'll see you later. Yep. See you next time. Thanks for listening to MuseCast 14. Tune in next time when we'll be discussing Beast Tribes Part 3. Happy adventuring, and may you ever walk in the light of the crystals.